US President Joe Biden paid an unexpected visit to Kyiv, showing support for Ukraine and sending a strong signal to Russia. The Munich Security Conference showed a solidified consensus among Western leaders that Russia must be militarily defeated. China announced that it would put forward peace proposals to end the Russian war in Ukraine. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. My guest today is Maxim Panchenko, an analyst at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine. You can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our humanitarian trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Maxim, we, co- we continue our series around Ukraine. So let's talk about the major event this week, which contains this geopolitical international element. What are these events? Yes, hello and thank you. So today we're going to talk about primarily Biden's uh, visit to Ukraine, which has been the major development as unexpected as it was about the Munich Security Conference uh, that happened last week, uh, about uh, China's conflict settlement plan, because recently at this Munich conference, China has presented itself as a potential negotiator, so we'll we'll take a look at that. And we'll talk a bit about the neighborhood of Ukraine, particularly about Moldova and how security issues are developing there, because there uh, there has been information about the potential coup d'etat to be staged by Russia there. So we'll talk about the impact on Ukraine of that. Yeah, so the major event is the the visit of the President Joe Biden, US President Joe Biden to Ukraine, and really yes. unexpected. We can testify to our listeners that being in Kyiv uh, until the last moment, until the moment when there were photos made on the cell phones by some pedestrians in, in central Kyiv, we were not informed that U.S. president was in Kyiv. This is a remarkable thing. I, 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 was, I, I spoke yesterday, so we are making this podcast on the 21st of February. Biden has visited yesterday on the 20th of February. And uh, I can tell you that I spoke to, um, to a famous journalist, uh, Ukrainian journalist, yesterday, and he was making a, a TV program. And he was asking his guests, some of them were officials, some of them were from the foreign ministry, why, what is happening in the downtown Kyiv? Why streets are you know, closed? Why transport cannot get into the Mikhailivska Ploshcha, this St. Michael, uh, Michael Square? And they didn't know... They didn't know who who is come, who has come. Why why was that? Why it was so secret? Well, I could even add up to that to what you've been talking about because I actually live the very next door to the U.S. embassy, and I never really saw any preparations for anything uh, going on. But uh, I think that uh, the secrecy and the clandestine nature of this visit was due to the U.S. perception of the situation in Ukraine as very volatile in terms of security, and uh, the fact that. Uh, uh as many people noticed yes noted yesterday in comments that ukraine's uh, skies are not closed so any missile strike or maybe even a daring uh raid 
plane a, a raid on Ukraine uh, could happen on the part of Russia. So it was a risk on the part of uh, Biden's administration. And uh, so, yes, that was just the, that were just the precautions. Uh, But we it. can assume that probably uh, the the air, air defense systems of the United States based maybe in the Mediterranean or somewhere else were really, you know, very much focused on on the sky over Ukraine. Of course. And uh, and Russia was uh, was actually warned. Well, Russia was informed, as as we know, mm-hmm. Russia was informed unofficially, diplomatically that Biden is uh, will be in Ukraine. But interestingly, uh, on the moment when Biden was walking in San Michael Square, Mikhailovska Plosha, there was air alert. I remember this. It was yes at eleven something. It's eleven. It's eleven, maybe thirty. Yeah. So what and was he did it? And he didn't even pay attention to that, which may only be confirming that he was sure that back-channel diplomacy had worked and Russians had been informed that guys like the president is going to be here, so do not do Yeah, we, we can admit, okay, Russians have been hitting uh, um, Kyiv when the UN general secretary was... There. Yes, back in April, I think, yes. Yeah, so Russians love this, you know, uh, hit... Uh, hit Ukraine when there are somebody important, but I, I do think that at this moment they are not on the level of the madness to hit uh, Ukraine when U.S. president is here. I also wonder just technically how he arrived, because, I mean, we also discussed this yesterday, so obviously for our listeners, just to remind that there is no air connection, right? Yeah. Uh, we cannot fly. You cannot fly from Washington to Kiev, even from Warsaw to Kiev. Um, in the better epoch, we probably could assume that he would fly on the helicopter, but after this helicopter crash, the tragic event, a crash on Brovary, uh, very close to the place where I live, um, I think the helicopters are not the option for for transporting officials, hiring officials and, uh, and other people. Um, what else? Maybe train? Uh, I think so. it was strange. I think Ukrainian Ukraine's railway company, uh, state-owned, uh, posted yesterday uh, a photo, a couple of photos with Biden traveling to Kiev and from Kiev. I think it was already for security reasons already when he was already back on the territory of Poland. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's the standard route that foreign guests take. But I can only imagine how many additional security precautions. Uh, but it, it, it is obvious that he didn't arrive on the central station, so he probably. Because there was a cortege of cars uh, noticed by by observers, and he probably the train ended up somewhere uh, in the Kiev suburbs, and then they put mm-hmm. the, the cortege of the cars. So it's really a very you know <laughs> spy story, almost very interesting. A special operation of its own. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about the, the the way how he the, the symbol the symbolism of this event, right? So he came on the twentieth of February. The twentieth of February is the day when we commemorate the the people, our what we call heavenly heroes, heavenly hundred heroes, the people who died on Maidan uh, on eighteenth, nineteenth, and twentieth of February. 2014 and obviously earlier earlier these days we remember that these were the tragic events which actually were the beginning of of the whole uh, <clears throat> series of tragic events uh, organized orchestrated by Russia afterwards the 20th of so it was a symbolic gesture just to commemorate these victims 
And uh, it was important that Biden and Zelensky came to this wall of memory, which is near um, Mikhailivsky Sobor, the St. Michael Cathedral. There is pictures of those who died since the war of 2014 and uh, up to the present days. Not all of them, of course. Um, also, 20th of February is the launch. We can, we can actually say that this is a launch, the day of the launch of the war, Russia's war against Ukraine in 2014 the day of the launch of the Crimea operation, because we know from the Russian, you know, the way how they decorate people who mm-hmm. who were involved into the annexation of Crimea, the date is uh, 20, 20th of February of 2014. So in a way, this is the date when, when all this started, not the 24th of February 2022, but back 20th of February. Right. Yes, and indeed, when we speak about the symbolic side of things here, it uh, the symbolism indeed is about dates and about signals. So dates, as you said, is about history, 2014. Uh, first of all, also it is uh, in the immediate run up to the first and let's hope the last anniversary of uh, of the launch of this uh, full scale invasion, uh, and uh, this was a signal also in terms that uh, amid the stocks about the imminence of uh, Russia's another push of invasion, another attempt to, you know, with a, several hundred thousand people to once again uh, try and to retake uh, more territories, including maybe Kiev. Uh, so he came here symbolically to support Ukraine and to say, like, look, in this in this situation, we are with you. And also, as I said, the symbolism is uh, in an entire array of signals that uh, Biden simultaneously sent out to different uh, different subjects, uh, to different actors. Uh, first of all, that would be uh, Ukrainian society, of course, as I said, not to repeat myself, that we are supporting you in this moment. Also, this is the signal to the Western coalition, like, look, in the run-up again to this new imminent invasion or iteration of invasion, uh, I show you the way how I lead this coalition, we should strengthen ourselves and continue supporting Ukraine. This is a signal to Putin, like, do not continue messing up with Ukraine because, look, like, if I am already here, this means that much is at stake because I am putting myself, my image forward. So I take this battle as seriously as the Ukrainian people does. So do not expect any victories, any major victories in Ukraine. And also, I think... Uh, maybe to a lesser extent, but this also was uh, a signal to China that look amid your thoughts about how you may or may not support Russia in this war. Again, keep in mind that this is not only the war against Ukraine, but also I am here. So pay attention to the fact that this may be also an issue between us two, between China and the US. So, you know, be restrained. Yeah, it was very important. This physical presence is always very important. And uh, I think it's also the, the, the show of bravery, uh, of bravery of, of Biden, of bravery of previous leaders who visited Ukraine, that, yeah, we are not afraid. We're not afraid of Russian missiles. We're not afraid of this. So physical presence, the politics of presence is, is very important. Uh, the, the speech of Biden. Uh, there are several events which interested me, and I want to want that we share our impressions. The first, how personal, 
the Ukrainian story is for him because he mentioned, I think, that this is his sixth visit and uh, he mentioned his visits as, as vice president. He mentioned his visits during Euromaidan revolution and, and in the after, in, and after, after Maidan. So it was really very personal, very personal for him, right? Yes, indeed, it was it was very personal. And again, as you said, back in the day when he was vice president, I think there was some kind of an informal division when immediately after Crimean uh, annexation and the outbreak of hostilities in the east of Ukraine, uh, there was this informal division that diplomacy on the part of the guests would be done with Moscow through Secretary uh, State Secretary Kerry and with Ukraine through Vice President Biden. So Vice President Biden is, ve- this is a very long-standing topic for his involvement in the US foreign policy as such. And also on a very personal level, as transpired from his uh, narratives yesterday, uh, especially when uh, he made references to his talks with President Zelensky in the immediate run-up to the, to the invasion, when they were talking about this possibly being the last time they were talking because, you know, of how events could go. So, yes, indeed, that is very personal. Also, he uh, recalled the <clears throat> phone talk of Zelensky on the 24th of February, uh, just, you know, I think it was minutes after after the invasion and maybe hours after the invasion. And uh, it's interesting that he mentioned, what can I do for you? And uh, according to Biden, Zelensky asked for a big coalition. So he uh, he asked Biden to gather the leaders of the states in the world to make up this coalition. And I think it's interesting because really this is not only Ukraine's war. We 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 can we can see this is a a war of authoritarian Russia against a coalition of the free uh, free nations, free democracies. Biden mentioned about 50 of them. And I think this is also kind of a change in the way how American politics looks like, because one of the uh, one of the criticisms of the American foreign policy was that it was always unit, unilateral. Yeah, when we remember the American invasion of Iraq, it was backed by the UK, some other countries, but not backed by a, a, a very profound and uh, big coalition, now it's changed. So it's not only like Russians are saying, oh, we're waging the war against America. It's not like that at all. Yes, indeed, it's not like that. And I think a big role here is, uh, in this being the the, the case, is that uh, Russia sees this as the war against NATO. Uh, There is an immediate threat immediately after Ukraine to a number of NATO member states. So this is about the viability of the NATO project, about the challenges to it at this stage, and the U.S. cannot but be involved in this to the utmost uh, extent, so of course. What else can we mention? Biden was very precise as to how many weapons this coalition is going to supply, and he actually mentioned 700 tanks. Uh, A thousand UAVs, I think. Yeah, a thousand uh, UAVs, uh, meaning the armored vehicles, uh, thousands of artillery systems, I think millions of uh, ammunition, ammunition, uh, air defense and anti-ship missiles. What were you impressed when we he named these figures? Well, of course, it sounds impressive, especially because I think this is uh, mm, quite more than the previously published figures are, because I think we previously spoke about 
around three, 300, 300, 350 tanks being uh, collected uh, throughout the coalition. So of course, this is a bigger, these are bigger figures. But at the same time, it's uh, important to keep putting things into perspective and to remember how many of those Russia has. So uh, this is uh, what Biden says is, of course, the best of news, but this is not the end of the story. So that's just, you know, to keep the, the eyes on the ball. Yeah, so we always discuss here how tanks are important and uh, Ukraine still hasn't done any big offensive with the tanks. Mm-hmm. The the Kharkiv offensive, offensive, counteroffensive in September was rather due to HIMARS as far as I can judge because it was the, the hits over the accumulated forces in one place of the Russians and therefore this was a real shock for Russians. Ukrainians, as Ukrainians showed, why Russians are not using tanks that much today because Ukrainians are equipped with all these anti-tank systems like Enlovs and uh, and Javelins, and these are things that can be done by infantry, and this is what happened actually in February and March when where where when these columns of t- of tanks of Russian tanks were just destroyed. Uh, destroyed. But tanks are needed to make a a hole, make a breakthrough in in the opponent's defense lines. I think this is what the clear calculation. Uh, we talk about the east, or we talk about the south. Maybe we're talking more about the south because uh, in the east, the fortifications, the defense have been you know prepared for years since 2014. So, therefore, tanks are important, and uh, of course, we will see how they will show themselves on the ground. No mention of fighter jets, no mention of uh, long-range missiles. I don't think there was a mention of long-range missiles. As to fire jets, of course, there is just, well, you you need a a lot of infrastructure to ensure the maintenance of them. But at the same time, we do not know what uh, what was uh, said, you know, during the subterranean talks, so to say. Maybe not so many things were made public. And in the in case of the U.S., I would uh, I would even um, probably be more sure that they are prone to keeping these things uh, clandestine than, for instance, European states when they I think they are the more open about like what we're giving, you know, and about you know. An objective, given an objective picture of what's being transferred. So I think that um, the one statement I think Zelensky made, uh, either at the press conference or immediately thereafter, was that uh, agreements, he believed that agreements achieved with uh, President Biden during the talks would definitely have an impact on the battlefield. So there, there apparently were talks about that. It's just that we don't know the details. And of course, the big question is the question of speed. How, yeah. uh, how fast these tanks will arrive, how fast the systems will arrive, how fast Ukrainian soldiers will will learn to uh, to manage them to because of course they are very very difficult uh, in in operation and then th- these are th- the questions of repair. So it's not like you announce 700 tanks and then tomorrow there will be a counteroffensive. We can we can actually wait for months or maybe even more when they see this impact on the ground. But it's clear that there is this decisiveness to defeat Russia. And uh, it's clear that there is a, a consensus already among the partners. What else? Back to the emotional side of it, I was surprised how many times Biden pronounced the word astounding. So 
the Ukrainian resistance is astounding, how everybody, as he said, including women, including uh, young people, have really stood up to this aggression, how the society organized itself. This was really something that I think surprised so many people around the world, including himself. Yes, indeed, because I think uh, one of the several reasons maybe why uh, there was, well, it was part of the opinion in the West, I think, uh, that Ukraine was going to fall, all these talks about 72 hours, etc., that was the result of uh, perception of Ukraine as a divided country, that there would be some passionate uh, opponents there would be some passionate fighters who would uh, try and, and to fight back, but part of the country would be greeting Russians, and which is why things would be over quite soon. And so we surprised the world with that. It's no news at this point, but uh, I think that is something that changed uh, the perception of Ukraine completely. And maybe this is exactly what President Biden uh, was talking about. So, What else would you like to add maybe to his visit or we move forward to, to the Munich conference? I think uh, let's tie this in with the Munich conference because I think the rhetoric that was delivered yesterday by President Biden about, especially in the part when, it, when he spoke about the eventual victory of Ukraine and how um, unequivocal this statement sounded, it resonates very much with the statements of other uh, officials from, others, uh, from other countries, from other partners of Ukraine that were voiced during the Munich conference. Uh, yes, so let's... Okay, the Munich conference, and we have seen a powerful speech of, of uh, President Zelensky, who was talking about David, Ukrainian David, but also collective David. He clearly mentioned it mm-hmm. against, the, against the Goliath. Um, and we have seen also other speeches of other leaders. So what impressed you? Well, there are several things about the Munich conference that uh, need to be highlighted. First is that for, I think, for for decades, Russia was not there. So the conference was not so much this time about the, uh, well, how do I put it, about the universal negotiations about how we build security around the world. But it was rather about how we tame Russia uh, through supporting Ukraine, how we cooperate with Ukraine to restore the balance of security in a way, to neutralize Russia and that threat emanating from it. So that re- that is the major shift in the idea of the conference. That's th- That is one thing. Second thing is something that I started to talk about uh, a couple of minutes back, about the rhetoric. Uh, Western officials became more unequivocal, as I said, more uh, forthcoming, so to say, in uh, their ability to say, we, we are going to help Ukraine win this war. It's not about some middle ground. It's not about uh, maybe talks with Russia. It's about victory of Ukraine, basically. So that, I think, is... Uh, an important shift in the rhetoric because now we see that this is something maybe compared to uh, Tehran conference of 1943 or something when there was decisiveness that we are still in war but we see that horizon that we are collectively collectively striving to achieve. And the third thing about the conference is that especially in the absence of Russia uh, there was a representative of China there which I think drew a lot of attention And I think rightly so, because uh, China tried to propound itself as a a potential interlocutor. It basically 
uh, announced that by the end of uh, the month they would have uh, a peace settlement, uh, a conflict settlement plan, which is a story of its own because it may be, it might be a Trojan horse. It needs to be embedded into a broader geopolitical picture and what interests uh, China may have here. But uh, the very fact of presence of uh, Wang Yi in uh, in Munich and the share of attention he got and how quite seriously he's been perceived as a potential party in negotiations, I think that's uh, maybe not a game changer, but a very important part of the picture. Yeah, I will ask, I will ask you about this, but first <clears throat> let me also share my impression that indeed, I think you're right, we, we increasingly see this word defeat with regard to Russia. This was a word pronounced by uh, Emmanuel Macron, La défaite, uh, assurer la défaite de, de la Russie, as he said. And uh, he also said there is no time for dialogue right now. Uh, n- no time for dialogue. And I think this is important because Macron was probably the only le- leader which tried to you know, still keep the dialogue with, with mm-hmm. Russia e- even a few months ago. At the same time, there is, of course, the, the, now the debate about the, the technical issues. And I, I do think that at one moment... Well, it's interesting how Ukrainian narrative, I mean, it's it's gradually step-by-step step winning because initially we are asking about tanks. They said no. Partners said no, the tanks will not be there. Um, now there is a talk about, you know, fighter jets. Uh, now the, the response is no, fighter jets will not be supplied and and there is a negotiation right uh, there is a talk right now whether ukraine can hit russian territory and uh, we've discussed this already and as far as i see the open discourse of people like macron they're reluctant to accept this but uh, my impression is that we will more and more go in this direction because uh, i mean when russians are accumulating their forces on their border and, and and shelling the ukrainian cities like kharkiv or threatened cities like sumy from their territory or i don't know whatever else they're doing how can we avoid uh, targeting the 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 targets uh, in russian territory and belarusian territory at this moment Right, so the discussion is there. Okay, so China, China. What is what is your impression? Because it's, it can be both. It can be like China's initiative to go away from this image of Russian ally, or it can be, as you said, the Trojan horse because uh, Russia not being able to table proposals on its own maybe has asked China to do so. Well, it's uh, not clear to the end right now because the proposal has not been submitted yet. As I said, they promised to do that by the end of the month. But I think several insights that have leaked into the press, um, they say that on the one hand, they primarily say that the document is going to be quite vague, but several components of it are very interesting and quite disturbing, some of them. Uh, On the one hand, China would propose uh, the respect of territorial integrity of states, uh, which might even suggest suggest that this means Crimea being back in Ukraine, according to, to, to the Chinese vision. But at the same time, uh, it is being rum- it is rumored that uh, one of the points in the in the document would be that uh, delivery of Western arms into Ukraine should stop, 
and that there should be a ceasefire, which basically means freezing the conflict along the, the lines uh, along which it exists uh, these days. So I'm not really un- uh, I'm not really sure what is better, the first or the second point, because the, the first one may be quite declarative, and se- and the second one plays in, into the hands of Russia. Uh, but again, we'll have to see when we see that proposal in full. In the meantime, um, the very fact that uh, China is going to uh, become or is trying to become a bigger uh, actor in this, this is making uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, Russia's war in, in Ukraine, more of a proxy game between the West, pr- primarily the US, and basically China. Because we saw President Biden in Ukraine, we saw all the other major leaders of the Western world in Ukraine, uh, which means that uh, we have the full support of that part of the world. Of the world, at the same time, there is China who has its own vision. So now it is apart from the development developments in the battlefield between Russia and Ukraine. This also is uh, a standoff in visions of how the the story should go, in a sense. Uh, between the U.S. and China. And so the U.S. is supporting uh, Ukraine. China is pushing uh, for the interests of Russia, overtly or covertly, that's not very important here. So that is potentially uh, a danger because it could grow into a bigger story, security story around the world. Yeah, the question of China is very important. So we can we can actually expect maybe different strategies. I don't think that Russia will fully back uh, the China will fully back Russia. Maybe they will they will be studying the American experience during the first and second world war that you support somebody and then you enter the conflict on somebody's side just to you know make a decisive a decisive blow and uh, we still don't know what it will be uh, maybe china will be interested to enter the conflict on the side of the western powers or ukraine and democracies we're, we're always talking about the western powers we forget japan we forget uh, australia we forget so many other countries uh, uh, so we will see of course uh, uh, interestingly that this kind of a story about China spying over US it seems to be a little bit going down mm-hmm. and uh, maybe China is interested you know to maintain the relations with the US with the US market in order not to be dragged into the sanctions or whatever so maybe it doesn't like this idea of Russia that we should again polarize this this world and we should build something Eurasian Eurasian uh, powers against the European powers and should consolidate Eurasia against Europe. Maybe China doesn't like it. We we don't know. It will be interesting to see. And another point is that, of course, when we think about all this, we should also avoid this very simplistic geopolitical thinking uh, from which Ukraine has suffered so much. So we should we should not forget that there are lots of societies which are actually against their governments. Uh, we should not talk about Iran as a as a solidified thing because there is Iranian society which is obviously in in many aspects against the Iranian regime. There are societies in Middle East, and uh, I invite you to listen to the other podcasts which we made uh, uh, recently. I will publish uh, a little bit later about the the effect of these events in Ukraine over the Middle East. Uh, and over societies over the Middle East. So uh, it's it's all very important, I think. I think that we avoid the simplistic geopolitical mm-hmm. 
lands. Okay, so let's talk about the, the next issue, the final issue, which is our neighbor, Moldova. What's happening there? So for the last, I think, 10 days, uh, there have been uh, not just rumors, half, uh, half clandestine statements, but even by officials, uh, that uh, there had been plans of Russia, of Russian officials, of Russian authorities to uh, stage a coup d'etat uh, in uh, Moldova to basically oust uh, President Sandung from her office and to establish a pro-Russian government uh, and presidency in Moldova. Um, the, interesting, uh, the interesting detail in this story is that Moldova was informed about these plans as, and was able to, uh, to stop the plan in its tracks, reportedly. Uh, Moldova learned this from Ukraine, from Ukrainian uh, special services, who uh, uncovered that operation and delivered the message to President Sandu. Uh, this, first of all, talks this, talks... this says about several things. First, about how much of a security provider Ukraine is becoming even despite being uh, in the state of war itself. But for the region, for the stability of region, it's um, it's a thing in which Ukraine should take incrementally more pride that we are a provider of security for the region uh, and in terms of, of uh, geopolitical importance of, of Ukraine, of course. Uh, secondly, it also is very telling uh, about the, the potential plans of Russia or how to further encircle Ukraine, because there is this Transnistria region uh, that has well, effectively been under control of Russian forces and, you know, Russian puppet forces, I would even go uh, and say. Uh, but there is the problem of access there, because I think that, uh, since, uh, well, there have never been a ground corridor there, but I think before 2014, Russians, uh, Russian authorities had an air uh, connection with Transnistria. So, you know, rotation, delivery of equipment could be affected through air. And But since 2014, I think this has been impossible. So Russia would kill two birds with one stone if it had access to it. First of all, it would be able to connect the territories probably through the south of Ukraine and to further encircle Ukraine, which would uh, put Ukraine even more in even more dire straits uh, in the battlefield. And uh, secondly, Russia would finally uh, access uh, its military platform in a way. It is in decay, it has been in decay, but it can be restored. Uh, what matters is that Russia had their facilities in the first place, and it could be uh, a ground from which they could develop, I mean, Russia could develop its actions, God knows where, to the east, uh, I mean, to the east of Ukraine, uh, to, you know, to, again, to encircle Ukraine, or to the west, to uh, go against NATO when NATO is, uh, uh, would be weakened, for instance, or maybe to go north and to try to, uh, to chop off, in a way, Ukraine's western territories and to cut those those channels of western equipment deliveries to Ukraine. Yeah, there is this talk that uh, there is a big Russian plan of encircling Ukraine in the west, uh, the attack from Belarus, but uh, more to the west, uh, on, on Volhynia, on Lutsk and Rivne, and then the attack from Transnistria on Bukovina, for example. Uh, it's interesting that Ukraine actually was suggesting, as far as non-official non information says, was suggesting to Moldova to solve the issue of Transnistria. Because in, in Transnistria, 
There is a Russian contingent, but it's not that big. It's 1,000-something soldiers, plus there are locals, Transnistrians. For the Ukrainian army today, it's not, not really a, a force. But uh, the problem is that f- for Moldova, the question is who will manage it afterwards. Okay, you, you, you maybe uh, make a military operation, but then you need police to, you know, to control it. You need law enforcement to control it, and Moldova doesn't seem to have to be in capacity to do that. So this, of course, is a, is a big security problem, both for Moldova and for Ukraine. And of course, this is a threat of, also for Odessa, for such cities as Odessa, because the events in March, in February, March, shows that these fears that Odessa will be captured from the sea are not that realistic. So Odessa can be captured either through capturing Kherson and Mykolaiv, which is not realistic right now, or through may, maybe an operation from Transnistria. But of course, the contingent there is not is not enough. But generally speaking, of course, Russia tries to undo all these revolutions, uh, anti-tyrannical revolutions on the post-Soviet space in a different way. It ensured the defeat with Lukashenko, it defeated the Belarusian revolution. There is a counter-revolution in Georgia, as we know, the authoritarian regime which which keeps uh, Saakashvili in prison and many other uh, other people. And there are there were attempts, of, of course, to undo the Moldovan revolution. And uh, before Sandu, we, we, we remember that uh, the government was uh, in some way very pro-Russian. Uh, Armenia, you name it. So, of course, there is something going on and this social mobilization which Russia wants to tame. And, of course, Ukraine is a key country for this. Okay, so this was a podcast explaining Ukraine, our series around Ukraine, in which we talk about geopolitical issues and international issues which are involved into into the current Ukrainian politics and Russian invasion of Ukraine. My name is Vodemir Yermolenko. Uh, my guest was Maxim Panchenko, analyst at Ukraine World. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our humanitarian volunteer trips to the front line as at paypal ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.